coming up in this episode. Is that a cop, Dan? Dude, that's a cop down. Dude, that's a cop down. Yeah. There's four cops down. Four? Yeah, he shot five, seven times. The killing of five police officers in Dallas may be a watershed moment for police all across the country. This is the kind of game changer that you'll see from a tactical perspective have a ripple effect throughout police departments across our country. A former police officer and top U.S. counterterrorism agent says policing is going to take a dramatic turn. You know, at the end of the day, uh, I, I still remain convinced, like we've chatted about over the years, that in order to stop these kinds of attacks from occurring, you need human intelligence. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Got a very graphic situation. San Bernardino. Upwards of 14 people that are dead. We are now investigating these horrific acts as an act of terrorism. Paris. An attack on all of humanity. The Islamic State. I'm back, Obama. They want you to imagine them in the shadows as something greater than they are. Hostile nation states. They can't inflict mortal damage to the United States. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. This is Target USA. America in the crosshairs. Whether it's anarchist, cyber criminals, nation states, or terrorist, America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. As of July 20th, 2016, 31 law enforcement officers had been shot to death in the U.S., according to the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund. That's a 72% increase since last year this time. Half of the 63 police fatalities were caused by gunshots. 25 out of the 50 states have lost an officer in a shooting. Texas leads the list with seven. Louisiana next with five. Six states have three. Five states have two and 11 states have one police fatality by shooting. After the Dallas ambush, Fred Burton, vice president of intelligence at Stratfor, himself a former police officer in Montgomery County, Maryland, who also was instrumental in the development of the Rewards for Justice program at the State Department, focusing on terrorism, told Target USA there are some difficult days in the future. By our count, this was the third worst uh, disaster for law enforcement. Uh, uh, first, you had 9-11 and the Twin Towers collapse, and then you had the bombing at Oklahoma City. This would have been the third largest single loss of law enforcement life here in the United States in modern era. I think what happens, just having been a former cop in JJ, is that uh, you're going to have a tactical and psychological impact to officers nationwide. Uh, You can already see the reaction across the country with police departments on heightened alert, encouraging their officers to elevate their awareness. And to be quite frank, this doesn't help when it comes to community engagement time, meaning, uh, in essence, uh, uh, just out of sheer fear, there's there's that challenge of um, trying to deal with this in the aftermath of one of these kinds of shootings. And, you know, cops uh, are, uh, like all of us, have that human reaction to these kinds of events. And 
they want to go home at the end of their shift. So um, this, these are troubled times, JJ. I think uh, when I look at this just for the perspe- from the perspective of history, you have to go back to the late 1960s or the early 1970s with the days of rage across the United States when police officers were targeted and attacked and police stations blown up and so forth by groups like the Weather Underground Organization, the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army. So uh, it's going to be a challenging environment for domestic law enforcement. And a part of that challenge right now is not just the black versus white part of this, but there are white supremacist groups and other hostile groups that live in the states, the sovereign movement, that um, also in, include police as, as, as their target. Um, so I'm wondering how this impacts the threat stream and threat cycle for police across the country. It certainly does, uh, not only from a state fusion center aspect under DHS control, but uh, FBI Joint Terrorism Task Forces that have been laser fixated on uh, groups such as Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, uh, and to a lesser degree, uh, outliers uh, that that might not be on that kind of scale. So uh, is this going to be a shift to where you have police departments, big city police departments, uh, start to relook at their intelligence divisions as to uh, the kind of organizations or personalities or groups that they're going to collect on. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I, I still remain convinced, like we've chatted about over the years, that in order to stop these kinds of attacks from occurring, you need human intelligence. So uh, these other three suspects uh, that are still in custody, allegedly linked to the shooter, I think it's going to be fascinating because uh, at the end of the day, was this a one-man operation or was this a small cell of four at least that knew what was uh, going to be planned? You were a Montgomery County police officer back in the 1980s. How has the whole scenario of being a police officer changed since then in your mind? I think it's uh, night and day. Uh, the job we used to do uh, when I was a Montgomery County police officer, which I'm very proud of before I went federal, uh, you had a lot of time that you could go out of your car and talk to people and engage with businessmen at your local establishments. Uh, you could stop and chat with citizens. Uh, you just don't have that flexibility today as a cop uh, due to the volume of 911 calls. So uh, I think that that's the challenge. And, uh, you know, the big uh, buzzword today is community engagement time or uh, the old school community policing, meaning how do you get cops out of their cars in order to engage the public so uh, people don't view them as the enemy uh, or a potential target. And uh, so uh, it's a challenging job today with not only uh, the violence but uh, uh, camera phones and uh, body cameras and your entire life recorded for historic sake. So uh, it's a different kind of job. And I think that that's one of the challenges that uh, police departments have in filling some of their police recruit ranks. Uh, I know uh, lots of police departments struggle with just trying to get people that want to be cops today. In the aftermath of the Dallas police ambush, An eerie scenario was playing out in Dallas 
on social media. Look, you gotta really look at the man who would kill three law enforcement officers in Baton Rouge was there in Dallas watching. Peace family. What up with y'all? I'm in Dallas right now in the streets, you know, on my book tour, on another book tour, giving the knowledge out to my people. And I, I had already decided that I was coming to Dallas before the even, you know, police shooting already happened. So I was already decided. So I don't know. I guess it's just, you know, the spiritual was just telling me it was the right place to come before. But I before the police shooting occurred, I had already made the decision to be here. Gavin Eugene Long, who legally changed his name in May of 2015 to Cosmo Osar Setapenra, made a video while in Dallas challenging his followers to stop protesting injustices by police and fight back. You gotta fight back. That's the only way a bully knows to quit. He doesn't know words. He can't understand words, I promise you. He doesn't understand protests. If y'all want to keep protesting, do that. But for the serious ones, the real ones, the alpha ones, we know what it's going to take. It's only fighting back or money. That's all they care about. Revenue and blood. Revenue and blood. Revenue and blood. Nothing else. Don't even think about it. And on July 17th, his 30th birthday. He launched a deadly attack in Baton Rouge. We've had six officers that were shot today in East Baton Rouge Parish, three of which are Baton Rouge uh, City Police officers, uh, two of which are deceased. One is still alive, and Chief Dabody will speak to the, those individuals in a minute. We've had three East Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's deputies that were shot. One that is deceased, 45-year-old. One is in critical condition fighting for his life as we speak. 41-year-old, and one had non-life-threatening... And looking at what happened in Dallas and in Baton Rouge and other police departments around the country, Burton is forecasting a turbulent period ahead. This is the kind of game-changer that you'll see from a tactical perspective have a ripple effect throughout police departments across our country. Why is that? Because of the nature of the targeting. Compare and contrast this tragedy in Dallas with what took place in Orlando. You had a very disciplined shooter in Orlando at a very specific target set, uh, civilian casualties. Here in Dallas, you had a laser-focused fixation on cops in uniform with very little civilian casualties. So in essence, uh, this is from the playbook of groups from the the radical left from the late 60s and the early 70s at specifically targeting police and government representatives. So what do they do about that then, these groups? I think you've already touched on it a little bit then. But um, that being the case, what is it that police organizations across the country do? Because I, I just spoke with the head of Secret Service a few days ago, and he, he addressed the steep challenge they've got with the election coming up and the conventions, obviously. But what about the local police departments? The local police department has to make sure that from a tactical perspective that uh, as quickly as the lessons learned can be pushed out to the field, uh, what worked, what didn't work. Uh, in essence, uh, why was the casualty count so high? Was it a result of uh, just uh, tactical precision on the part of the bad guy in 
having a perch or the high ground to be able to just pick off cops as they were rolling up. Uh, what are we going to do when we have a similar kind of occurrence unfold uh, in another uh, city? Uh, will this result in copycat operations? Uh, if you're that person that's predisposed towards this activity based on the success of Dallas and the eyes of some, that's the kind of challenge that uh, uh, big city police chiefs and intelligence commanders need to be thinking about right now. And as police scramble to figure out their next moves and how to protect themselves, the public is facing perhaps the greatest terrorism threat it's ever faced. As of today, July 20th, 2016, there have been five major international attacks outside of the Middle East in the last month. In the Middle East and North Africa, there have been daily attacks. But the Islamic State group, Al-Qaeda, and other terror organizations have mastered the recruitment and deployment of fighters all over the world, primarily because of the speed and anonymity of Internet and social media platforms, making the threat to America, whether it's here or abroad, much more prominent. And it's at this point that we pivot to ask some critical questions. And one of those questions is, are we, the media, making the problem worse? I think we have a challenge in the media when we're assessing these attacks because we don't have the capability to step back for a day or two and ask one simple question. What was this person trying to do when they executed the attack? We assume that because it's a target like French Bastille Day and because of the number of victims, therefore it's terrorism. I think we have to ask a simpler question at the outset of any analysis of an attack. Do we understand what's going on through this individual's mind when he conducted that attack? I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.